In a noisy, stressful world, quiet is the most valuable commodity. And the cabin of every Lincoln vehicle is designed with this principle in mind. Should you desire a little more melody, our available Revel Audio system will not disappoint. The very same engineering that makes for a whisper-quiet interior provides a studio-like setting in which to rock out to your music, finding harmony all around you. That's the power of sanctuary. And that's Lincoln. Revel and the Revel logo are trademarks of Harman International Industries, registered in the United States and other countries. Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. We are now part of Apple Podcasts. So if you want to listen to my podcast, all you have to do is put in Apple Podcasts um, on Google and the title of my program and my name, because I tried it, and it comes right up. I'm Harriet Hendel. Today, we are very pleased to welcome... Jeff Smith. A few months ago, a friend and Jeff's cousin loaned me Jeff's book, which is called Mr. Smith Goes to Prison. I enjoyed it so much that I decided to invite Jeff to spend some time with us. It's good to have you on the program, Jeff. And um, I wanted just to read uh, your bio so people know who you are. And then uh, I would love to begin with the, my, your impressions of the book, since it really had a great impression on me. Jeff Smith is the executive director of the Missouri Workforce Housing Association, an umbrella group of 180 organizations that support preservation and development of quality, affordable housing. Previously, Jeff was executive vice president at Concordance Academy, a nonprofit that helps former prisoners and a public policy professor at the New School, where he taught graduate courses on urban political economy, political policy analysis, campaign management, and legislative strategy. Before that, he served in the Missouri Senate, sponsoring and passing legislation on urban education. Uh -oh. historic preservation and family law. He narrowly lost a congressional race. As chronicled in his documentary, Can Mr. Smith Get to Washington Anymore?, which was shortlisted for an Academy Award. He's written three books, Trading Places on U.S. Party Alignment, Mr. Smith Goes to Prison, A Memoir and Argument for Reform, and Ferguson in black and white, and an and historical analysis of the town's unrest. He's published articles in academic journals, chapters in edited volumes, and op-eds for the New York Times, Politico Magazine, CNN.com, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, and more, and The New Republic. 
Um, his TED Talk on prison entrepreneurship has garnered 2 million views. He serves on the advisory boards of the Prison Entrepreneurship Program and the St. Louis County Justice System. He's earned a BA in Black Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, my dad's alma mater, and an MA and PhD in Political Science at Washington University. So now we know who you are. Um, so I'd love to begin with your memoir, but what I would like is um, to ask you to tell us the story of how you came to be an inmate at a federal prison in Missouri. Well, thanks so much for the introduction, Harriet. Thanks for having <laughs> me welcome. on the show. Uh, so how did I become a federal inmate actually in, in Kentucky? Oh, uh, well, Kentucky. That's, right. that, that's okay. It's, it's, it's a long story, but let me see if I can get it into about 90 seconds for you, okay? Okay, sure. I was running for office. I was a 29-year-old, uh, finishing my PhD, and I decided to do something crazy, run for Congress in, against the heir of one, the scion of one of Missouri's leading political dynasties. His name was Russ Carnahan. His father was governor. His mom was a U.S. senator, and my dad was a golf coach. My mom uh, worked with, with kids who had learning disabilities. So I didn't come from a political background. It was a very much a long shot campaign, but we built more and more momentum over the course of it. And about two weeks before the end of the campaign, as we continued building momentum, thousands of yard signs in, uh, but no media would cover the fact that my opponent, Russ Carnahan, had missed more votes as a state legislator than almost any other legislator in Missouri and had a very undistinguished record. So a guy approached my campaign and he said that he, he approached two of my staff. He said, I want to put out a mailer about Carnahan's abysmal attendance record. My staff came to me and said, hey, can we give this guy the information about Carnahan's poor attendance record? He wants to put out an independent mailer. Now, I knew that smelled a little funny. I knew that there was something not right about it. I wasn't an expert in campaign finance law, but I knew it was a little fishy. But instead of saying to my aides, why don't you look into this guy's background? Or why don't you look into the specifics of campaign finance law to see if we could do this? I didn't ask any questions. All I said was, look, I don't care. Uh, I don't want to know what you guys do. And they said, so should we do it or not? And I said, did you hear what I said? Just don't tell me anything. I don't want to know. So the entire conversation maybe lasted 45 seconds. They went and told, they gave this independent actor Carnahan's voting record. The guy put it in a mailer, but he neglected to put the little paid for by disclaimer at the bottom of the mailer. That opened it up to a federal election commission complaint by Carnahan. On election night, I was ahead most of the night, but then at about three in the morning, I fell behind and I lost by 1%. Carnahan mm. filed a complaint with the FEC. They asked me a week or two later in a letter if I could sign an affidavit regarding the postcard. And I signed an affidavit that had 15 statements. 14 of them were true. One was not. It said, mm. I have no knowledge of who printed, designed, uh, 
finance or disseminated this postcard. And I rationalized it by saying, I told my staff, don't tell mm -hmm. me anything. <laughs> Therefore, I don't really know anything. Five years later, after I got elected to the state Senate, uh, I was um, talking to my, my best friend reached out to me and he reminded me of all this stuff that had happened five years earlier. And he got me to, to allude to the fact that, hey, I actually did know something about that postcard mm -hmm. over the course of several conversations during a month. And little did I know that for that entire month, my best friend had been wearing a wire. Oh. So what, after that, how, how did things proceed with, uh, with charging you with a crime? Well, um, the feds reached out to, uh, they came and knocked on my door and, uh, we, um, it's a long story, but basically my, uh, attorney reached out to them and, and then I sat down with them and I admitted everything that I had done. And mm -hmm. then they were interested in me wearing a wire to ensnare friends of mine in politics who they believed had done things that were wrong. Uh, I didn't believe any of their theories. And so I wasn't interested in helping them on their fishing expedition. So uh, once that became clear to them, uh, the charges went forward and the prosecutor sought the maximum possible sentence for lying about whether I knew that my staff had met with the person who sent the factual postcard. And what was the maximum sentence that you could have gotten? I could have gotten about three years and I got a year and a day. A year and a day. Okay. So that is... We tried. I proposed that I be allowed to teach for two years for no pay and coach mm -hmm. basketball at a charter school I had co-founded in St. Louis, but that was, uh, that was denied. No good. So you knew that you would have to serve your time. And fortunately, it wasn't three. It was a year and a day. Um, how did you adjust to such a different lifestyle? Uh, it's a good question. Um, <sighs> you know, one of the great things about living a life as a, as a politician is that you learn to kind of fit, blend in with lots of different situations. One of the particular blessings of the district that I represented in St. Louis was that it is one of the most diverse districts. Uh, anywhere in the Midwest. It was about 57% black, uh, about 30% white, um, 7 or 8% Bosnian, uh, and then, you know, with the sprinkling of uh, Latinos and Asians as well. So my staff used to joke that I was one of like a dozen straight white guys in the whole district. But the point is, uh, being in that environment meant that every Thursday when I came home from the state capitol, I would go to six or seven neighborhood meetings, you know, two or three in black neighborhoods, uh, one in a heavily gay neighborhood, one in a Bosnian neighborhood, one in, you know, maybe a very conservative Catholic neighborhood. And, you know, I was a, um, you know, single agnostic Jew. And so I didn't have, my background was not that similar to most of the people I represented. And that was actually like, one of the things that made the job so stimulating to me was learning so much about different cultures. My academic background, I had been a black studies major in college and uh, had spent a lot of my childhood 
as you know in gyms as the only white kid on on uh, my basketball teams and so i was pretty accustomed to being in environments where people you know didn't necessarily look like me but i certainly uh you know it, it takes a lot to prepare you for prison what the, the good thing about politics was that i had forged an ability to get along with lots of different types of people and find common ground with them and i think that probably served me well in prison Oh, I would think so, because I, I was going to ask you as a follow-up, you know, what was most helpful to you during that year? And I think I think you answered the question. Is, is there anything you would add to that? You know, um, a few things were helpful. One thing that was helpful, paradoxically, were the circumstances of my initial, you know, situation, which is that my best friend had worn the wire on me, but I hadn't done it on anyone else. Since some of that was referenced in newspaper articles, people, uh, one guy in the prison who was from St. Louis, who had read the newspaper articles, was able to tell other people in the prison, this guy's all right, even <laughs> though he, even though somebody wore a wire, his friend wore the wire on him, he didn't rat a bunch of people out or wear a wire. So the other guys in the prison, they're kind of, presumption was that I was an okay dude from that. That's right. That's right. A second, Not, no snitch. You weren't a yeah. snitch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A second sure. factor was that, like I said, you know, basketball helped me being able to go to the gym and, and play in the prison basketball league. And, and especially, you know, if you're a point guard, then you're the guy who passes to everybody else. And it helps you, you know, just like in life, if you're somebody in life who is assisting other people a lot of the time and they get credit for the, you know, the big project getting done. If you're a point guard, you're the guy who gets the assist. You pass the ball to the one who scores and you try to make it easier for other people to be in the spotlight and get the credit for scoring the basket. So my ability to play and even the position and style of my play uh, helped me fit in um, at the uh, at the prison. So both those things were helpful. Yeah, they, they really sound like they were terrific. Um, now, the reality, though, of what prison is, how did that match your idea before you ever went there of what prison might be like? Was it a match or a mismatch? Uh, well, you know, there's some things in prison that are nothing like the movies and there's other things mm -hmm. that are like exactly like the movies. And one thing that's in the latter category is the day you get there there's there's like a walk, you know? It's like Shawshank Redemption. You walk up the yard and there's tons of people on both sides just hollering at you. And they were all hollering like, you know, 175, like 232, 044, like just three <clears throat> numbers, these three, three digit numbers. I had no idea what the hell this meant. When they would get a connection, like one of the new people would have the same number as the person yelling it, then they would bump fists and it was like a, a match. And so it took me a few weeks to understand what was going on there. But those final three numbers are the last three numbers of anyone's federal district court jurisdiction. So if you're from the Eastern District of Missouri, you're an 044. And while it was, again, seemed really incongruous to me to have these people celebrating and, you know, almost exuberant, you know, when they were... Uh, getting the numbers matched and, and this mood of people, it was after a few weeks that I realized that 
you know, these guys were reconnecting with people from their hometowns. And most of these guys had never graduated college. They had never even graduated high school. And this was in some ways the closest they'd ever get to a reunion. I see. <laughs> That's great. Um, what, what else um, was uh, surprising to you in terms of what your image of prison was before you got there? Anything else that was kind of took you aback? Well, you know, I underestimated how bright and ingenious the other people in the prison would be. You tend to think of people in prison as, uh, you know, just people who made huge mistakes and people who, uh, you know, made a mess of their life and, and all that. But what you don't realize is that a lot of these guys are entrepreneurial geniuses and have incredible savvy. There isn't a single concept that you would learn at Harvard Business School or at Wharton that you couldn't learn inside federal prison. I heard all of them. Everything from new product launch to promotional incentives to supply chain management, territorial expansion, barriers to entry. Every one of those concepts I heard lucidly explained inside prison, except in the parlance of the drug trade, mm -hmm. right? Because 99% of the people that I did time with were there for drugs. And so they understood and had a sophisticated grasp of all of these business concepts, the tragedy of prison is that we do so little to help people nurture this intuitive grasp of, of these concepts into any legitimate enterprise when they get out. Oh, that's that's a, that's a great point. Um, I was going to ask you to compare federal prison to state prison. I've visited five state prisons in different uh, states. California, um, New York, Connecticut, but I've never visited a federal prison, so I have no concept of what the differences are. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, in general, federal prisons are a little bit more uniform and a little bit nicer. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, there are certainly some new state prisons that are nice, but there are also some much older state prison and prisons that fall into a pretty dilapidated state. In the federal system, since the federal government can run deficits and states can't, you know, the federal government has been able to probably maintain prison facilities a little bit better than than some states. Um, I also so that's one difference. Uh, uh, a second difference is that, you know, people in federal prisons are there a lot longer. The average sentence in federal prisons is uh, about twice as long as the average state prison sentence. Ooh. And when you're in state prison, you tend to get paroled much faster, whereas in federal prisons, you have to do 85% of the time by mm. statute. So you get a lot of people that are doing, you know, 15, 20 years. In fact, most of the guys I did time with had a 10-year mandatory minimum for selling drugs, plus a five-year automatic enhancement for having a gun on their case, which means there was a gun in their car, a gun in their house, or a gun on their person when they were apprehended. So almost all of them had 15 years before any additional enhancements, like selling drugs near a school or a park or, you know, that you get an extra two years for those. So most people had 15 to 17 year sentences and we're going to do 13 to 15 years of time. 
of that sentence, right? Or actually, yeah. state prisons. I think the average sent the you know the average person does you know about three or four years in a state prison. Yeah. Now, um, in terms of crimes, and you just mentioned, uh, I didn't realize this myself that most of the people doing time in a federal prison, uh, most of them are there for drugs. Are there crimes? which should be punished with prison time in a federal facility and crimes which should not be punished uh, by, you know, putting someone uh, behind bars. And what, what alternatives are there to being locked up? Well, you know, I don't think, you know, I, I think that we should decriminalize drugs in this country. And so mm -hmm. I think anybody that, uh, that is apprehended with drugs and test positive for drugs should be put into a treatment program. Texas has done something uh, which very few states have done, which is they decided a little more than a decade ago that they were going to focus on treatment and rehabilitation and that they were going to actually, uh, instead of having people be waiting months or even years for a bed in a treatment facility, that they were going to build more treatment facilities so that anyone who needed it could get that kind of treatment and have taken a lot of people who would have otherwise gone to prison and put them into uh, these residential treatment programs. And you know what? They've closed eight prisons in the last Ooh. decade thanks to that policy change, and they've saved millions and millions of dollars as a state uh, having done so. So, And they've, of course, helped a lot of people heal getting the, getting the sort of treatment that they would never get inside of prison. Now, do you that that's quite that's quite a statement. Um, do you see the possibility of closing uh, prisons by decriminalizing uh, drugs? And what would happen if we did that as a nation? Who, who would be in our federal prisons? <laughs> well, you know, there would still be some people who commit fraud. Yeah, there would be. Right. You know, people who are, you know, uh, found guilty on like terrorism charges. Yeah. There are going to be people on hate crimes charges. There, you know, are certainly other types of federal crimes, but uh, people who commit drug crimes are the single largest, you know, subset of federal prisoners. Right. And about, I think, 45% or so of the federal system is comprised of, of those folks. So, certainly, if we were to do as a nation something like what Texas a conservative Republican-governed state has done over the last uh, 12, 13 years, then we would absolutely be closing uh, federal prisons as well. Right, right. The subtitle of your book is What My Year Behind Bars Taught Me About Americans, America's Prison Crisis. Um, I wanted to ask you what you learned from your experience and um, to read a, a small section of your book to our listening audience that uh, you selected. So what did I learn from my experience? Well, right. um, I learned, uh, first of all, as I mentioned, the um, incredible you know, entrepreneurial bent of, of people inside prison uh, and the fact that we do so little, uh, again, to actually help rehabilitate people and train them for successful careers when they get out. You know, there were only three courses during the whole time I was incarcerated. There were only three educational options. One was a like one week course in hydroponics. 
which is uh, it taught people how to grow tomatoes in water, um, as if that could prepare people for a successful <laughs> reentry. Uh, second one was a GED course that was taught uh, by someone who had just completed the GED course, despite the fact that I put in you know five requests to teach at the prison and had a doctorate and a decade of teaching experience. They they weren't interested in that. They put me to work in the food warehouse, unloading food trucks that came in uh, for 40 hours a week. And, and that's fine. It ended up being a blessing in disguise. It helped me fit in better uh, to have that job. And, and I made a lot of friends. And you know what, when you go into prison at five, six, 117 pounds, it's, it's not a bad thing to become buddies with <laughs> six of the biggest guys on the yard, right? So that was a blessing. But I learned, uh, you know, broadly speaking, from that decision that the prison made, that the actual education or rehabilitation of anybody inside wasn't that important to them. The third course that was offered was a pre-release course in computer skills. About three weeks before I got out, they they uh, sent a dozen of us who were going to be getting out that month into a room, a, a computer room with 12 brand new computers that had been locked the entire time I was there. We all got in. We started, you know, sat down at the computers and uh, the CEO in charge, he says, all right, you see that little button on the bottom right? Push that button in, and that's going to turn your computer on. So we all pushed the button, and the computer's turned on. And then these guys, none of whom I think had ever been on a computer in their life, because this was 2010, and they'd all been locked up about 15 to 20 years, mm. they were all, you know, one of them was playing with the mouse, just putting the mouse in circles. And... <laughs> He's saying, yo, CO, he says to the correctional officer, when I move the mouse and he's showing the arrow on the screen, he was fascinated by the correspondence of the movement between the arrow on the screen and his <laughs> almost childlike in his fascination with this. He says, yo, CO, when I move my, uh, the CO says, shut the up. Wow. And then we sat in silence for 45 minutes uh. looking at a computer screen and playing with the mouse. And at the end of 45 minutes, the CEO says, y'all remember that little button on the bottom right? We'll push it again. And get the back to your cell. And so that was our course in computers. Mind you, going out into the world for people who have never been on computers, who, you know, you don't get a job by knocking on doors anymore. You don't get a job through the classified section of the newspaper. You got to know how to go online to find job openings. And this was FCI Manchester's uh, answer to that. So really sad. Yes. And it, uh, you know, told me a lot about the prison system. And their priorities. Now, um, I had asked you to read a section of your book, but um, we have almost no time left today. Um, but would you be willing to come back so we could do uh, another interview with you? Would you be willing to do that? Sure, I'd be happy to. All right. So I'd like to save that reading uh, from your book until uh, the next time. So I thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us today. And uh, my listeners, thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you have uh, any thoughts on what you hear, I'd love to hear from you at pursuing.justice5 at gmail.com. 
So I hope you'll tune in next time for part two of the interview with Jeff Smith. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with us. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.